possibly it, the question has occurred to you. That if the ego personality is not what God created, if you are the light of God and the light of God shines in your heart, and if it is true that the day will come in which you will realize that this is your identity and not the part of you that gets irritated and gets jealous and gets sick and so forth, what composes what makes up, what determines the ego personality? I can see you all nodding. You really have thought about this. This is a burning question, isn't it? <laughs> we are what we worry. <laughs> Not what we eat, what we worry. And how do we know other people? Ye shall know them by their worries. <laughs> so it's our, it's our worry, it's the worrying of the ego that determines everything that you do as an ego. Determines uh, your activities during the day, the job you select, what courses you took in college, how you bring up your children, how you dress, what you eat, whether you step on the cracks when you're walking down the sidewalk or not, whether you speak loudly or speak softly, what kind of language you use, all that. From an ego level, that's all determined simply by our worries. And the ego actually does nothing but worry. And we're, we're very, very attached to our worries. Once again, there's nothing to do about this except to notice it. Just notice that there's a part of your mind that worries about everything. And as you notice it, as you simply allow yourself to be aware of this little teeny part of your mind, which is a total madman, then you'll also be aware of this gentle light, this, uh, this soft, warm welling up inside your soul. Now, the worrying part of you does not acknowledge the absolute purity of your motives within your heart. And I'd like to suggest that we just take a moment here just to see if you can Notice these two things. Now, you may not notice them right now, but this may be something you'd like to do every once in a while. Whenever you're about to enter an activity and you feel a sense of tension about it, which means that you've now become, to some degree, preoccupied with the future. Any sense of tension means a future orientation. When you notice that, see that there are two things going on. The worrying, the concern, comes from your second-guessing your motives. It comes from thinking that you're not going to do this for a completely pure motive, whatever it is. Go out to lunch, go to the party, uh, what, whatever the thing may be. Discipline your child. You need to take a stand with your child. And now you're feeling anxious about this. You're feeling a sense of tension. So within your mind, there will be two things. One is a sort of second-guessing of motives attributing a shabby motive to what you are about to do. And this is what's causing the anxiety. And the second thing will be a very pure motivation within your heart. Now, every one of us has that. We want very much to be kind to our children, to be good and loyal friends, to live a life that blesses rather than curses others. And this motivation is as pure as gold. It has no connection to the other motivation, which comes from our made-up identity, which we call the ego. So let me ask you to close your eyes now, just for a moment.
think of something that is coming up in your life. Maybe it's merely returning to work Monday morning. Whatever it may be. And if there isn't anything that seems to be causing you at least a little anxiety about the future, whether it's money or whatever, then go back to something that caused you anxiety in the past, something that you can remember in detail. Now, with your eyes closed, become aware of these two different sets of motives. Now, feel no anxiety about this exercise because remind your mind that you are not telling yourself now how you're going to behave. You are not determining how you're going to act in this situation, whether you will ask for the money or whatever the thing may be. You're simply noticing the motivations with making no conclusion as to what, they, what behavior they lead to. So shuttle between your heart and the purity, this pure gold of motivation in your heart, and the anxious concerns of, of the consequences if you don't do this and if you don't do that, and maybe such and such will happen. So I'll be quiet just for a moment and just see if you can shuttle back and forth between those two sets of motives. Okay. Nope, guys, if you want to. Once again, there's nothing to do about this. Now, we would join with our true self. We would recognize what we really are so much more rapidly if we realize that the truth doesn't call for any kind of behavior. This is, this is possibly the greatest retardant to spiritual growth, is thinking that the truth is asking us to behave in a certain way, to change the way we would do business, change the way we would relate to our friends, change the way we relate to our own body. The truth does not ask anything of us behaviorally because all behavior belongs to the ego. And, and the truth of God is not interested in whether we uh, pat people on the back or smile or whatever we do, or whether we just look at them. Uh, it, it's, the truth is concerned with the love in our heart and the outpouring of love, but the truth doesn't care how that's expressed, whether it's expressed silently or not. But your ego will step in and say that the truth is asking you to behave in a particular way, and you don't want to behave in that way. Just notice this. Kindness seems to call for a sacrifice. And yet it, it doesn't because it's just the singing of the heart which can be done in any situation whatsoever. That's why the truth never asks you to change jobs or change your friends. You can change your job or change your friends if you want to, but that has nothing to do with the truth. The truth has to do with whether or not your heart is singing. And of course it always is singing. And so it really only has to do with whether or not you have been just still or calm enough to notice this happy song that's coming from a part of you. A very, very deep part of you. Let me ask you, close your eyes again. There is a there's the memory of an ancient song within you. An ancient, ancient song. That song tells you who you are and where you are. This instant has nothing to do with this world. For just a moment, become as still as you can and see if you can hear that ancient song that ancient memory of who you are and where you are 
right now. Okay, you can open your, open your eyes. Now, if you didn't hear anything, if you didn't feel anything, if you didn't feel a little relaxation and a little calmness, don't worry about that. This is something that you might like to do every once in a while. Don't make this a duty. But you may, every once in a while, if you find yourself in a situation where you can allow yourself a few seconds of stillness, do nothing more than become still and see if you can remember who you are where you are, what this whole thing is about. You already know what's going on. You know everything that's going on. You know the mistake that was made. You know how it's being corrected, and you know how it's going to turn out, and you know what you are right now, the child of God. But you will never know it if you confine your attempts to know it purely with concepts and words. Try to go a little bit beyond the words to the experience that you are cradled in God's arms this instant. That God stands before you and all around you. This can be seen. It can at least be sensed a little bit. And the world will brighten as you sense it. But don't be deceived by that. It isn't the world that's brightening. It's you're seeing the presence of God that causes the light to flood into you. So we are what we worry. Now, what are some of the uh, common worries that we all have? Am I growing ugly? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Will I run out of money? You'll never have enough. You see, actually, actually, the ego asks the question. We think when we get anxious about money that we think the question is, "Will I run out of money?" So we have these vague pictures of our. Selves, you know, sitting on the curb with this little shaking hand and this thing of pencils and so forth. Right. That isn't actually what the, if you look real closer, that isn't actually the worry. The worry is, will I have enough money? Because the person who's selling the pencils has enough money to eat and so forth, but not enough money according to that person's ego. So the simple fact is, you will never have enough money. Now, why aren't you smiling? That's a wonderful thing to understand. <laughs> That's a marvelous thing to understand. If you can understand that one thing, you will never have another word. Because if you realize that you're just simply not going to get there, then you won't try to get there. You'll just... Make as much money as you want to make and you realize it never be enough. And <laughs> Will I get sick? It's another worry. For sure. <laughs> You're definitely going to get sick. Now, that should just... You should all just be relaxing and just feeling so wonderful about that because that means you don't have to uh, muster up some sort of defense about getting sick. <coughs> You're going to get sick until we lose interest in this love affair that we have with sickness and illness and so forth. Then we will partake of it. You cannot have an ego without getting sick because there's nothing that the ego likes to do more than get sick or see other people get sick and try to figure out why they got sick or to compare how someone else gets sick compared to how we get sick and theirs is so much less spiritual the way they do it. So. We just got a little upset stomach and they're flat on their backs for two weeks with the flu. 
you see. So it's not possible to be involved in this world and involved with an ego without getting sick. There's no battle to fight about that. It is true that a healing can take place with a particular illness. You can heal yourself of a particular illness. But if you haven't already seen this, you will eventually see it really doesn't make any difference because another illness will take its place or another problem equally distressing. If the whole world were healed of illness, if we wiped out sin and disease, excuse me, if we wiped out disease and illness, something else would take its place immediately. Maybe an attack from Mars or something. I mean, there would be something equally distressing that would fill the gap. This is why all the great healers stopped healing eventually. But I'm not advising anybody to stop healing. But what I'm saying is it's very interesting that the people who had tremendous gifts of healing, all the ones that I know about, late in their lives decided to not do it anymore. Very much like people who are precognitive eventually decide not to tell people what's going to happen to them in their in the future. They realize this is not helpful. It doesn't make them happy. Centers their mind on something in the future. Many of you have uh, psychic gifts. And I bet that a number of you have already decided not to use them because it doesn't make people happy. It's very interesting that after the resurrection, Jesus didn't heal. Uh, on the late Joe Goldsmith tapes, you can hear him now counseling his uh, practitioners. Okay, heal them the first time. You know, this may bring them to truth. But don't keep healing them because this isn't going to, they're just going to think that, uh, that somehow that their lives will run just fine and there's a way to sort of fix up every little thing that comes along. Now, once again, I'm not advising you to stop healing. I'm just saying that it's very important that we recognize that it doesn't mean anything. It may be a charity. It may be an act of kindness. And you can sense if it would be. Another favorite worry. Did they understand what I meant? They thought the worst. In other words, they did understand what, what you were saying, you see. So in other words, well, the ego is always in play whenever we say anything. Suddenly, a day later, we remember what we said, and we wonder if they understood our ego motivation for saying it. Yes, they understood it. Another favorite uh, worry is, how do I look? About uh, 12 years ago, I was rolfed. There was much less to work with in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and the man who rolfed me complained bitterly that I didn't have enough pain lines in my face. <laughs> And he did his best to, to remedy the situation. <laughs> so you can't win that battle either. You're never going to look right. You're either going to be too pretty. You know, so pretty, they're so pretty. You see? Are you going to look too straight? Are you going to look too hip? Are you going to... Look too blissed out or <laughs> whatever it may be. You can't win that battle. What a relief. Isn't this wonderful? You can't win the battles. We're not going to fight anymore. Right. And then, of course, there are all the worries that we have about our personality. Are we witty enough? Are we intelligent enough? Uh, are we assertive enough? Uh, do people respect us? Do people like us? So we're always sort of tampering with our personality, trying to fix it up, you know. We take this uh, course over at St. John's, you see. We're going we're gonna to we're gonna know all these things about uh, Beowulf, and, you know, we're going to be able to talk about these things in the party, too, because suddenly we realize that we have this big hole in our personality. See. It will never be adequate. 
There's no perfect personality. Everyone will react to it differently no matter how you change it. And the people who are supposed to love you, who are supposed to be in your life, will be there. Just like they always have as you've gone through all the personality changes that you've gone through in the past. You see, they saw through all that. That wasn't what they loved. There's a wonderful place in Emerson's journals where he suddenly discovers that his friends don't love him for the reasons he thought they did. So the ego always worries. That's what composes the act. That's how the ego chooses its activities. That's what composes its personality and so <coughs> forth. So what do we do about that? Well, we simply learn to park the ego. Well, if we think of the ego as a dog that we're taking on a walk, you know, we learn how to throw it a bone if we need to or uh, tell it to come on uh, if it's gotten in trouble someplace. We simply learn to distract the ego. That's quite different than trying to control it or, or trying to uh, humiliate it. It's quite different than paying penance. We, we, we make these mistakes, which means we identify with our ego. Suddenly we look at our ego motivation for what we just did. We feel very guilty about this because we think it's our motivation. And then in some form we try to pay penance for this. Do penance. Notice how often during the day you try to do penance for what you just thought or what you just said, or because you suddenly have got a lot of money, you've inherited this money, now you're going to do penance for this. This is, this is a shame, you see. You've got to work this off in some way. Bleed, bleed, bleed. So the ego is always up to this. We recognize that. And the thing that makes a, a spiritual path so easy is recognizing that we don't have to do anything about the ego except just distract it like we would a little child if it's gotten if it's after something that's dangerous we just point in a new direction so here's some things that you can you're, now remember your ego goes from one activity to another during the day because it's worrying so you can't stop that but you can direct it into worries that will be less distracting to you. So it can worry about things that are just sort of pleasant worries. And then you can turn to God. This is not dissociation. This is not schizophrenia. This is the simple recognition that there's a difference between what's in your heart and what's in this very fearful little self-image that you carry around with you. It's perfectly all right to step away from the self-image. In fact, it's absolutely necessary to do that and realize that you are the child of God. You are not this little shabby thing, you see. So what can you do? How can you distract your ego? How can you part your ego? Because you see, there's this wonderful parade going on. Here comes this magnificent parade, and we're, we're driving this, this car in front of it, and all we have to do is just Park the car and let the parade continue. Every time the parade stops, it's because the car has gotten out in the middle of the road, you see. That's our ego. Suddenly, it's the focus of our attention. All we have to do is park it. We don't have to destroy the car. Although, there was that wonderful thing on uh, national news, the guy who took a sledgehammer and absolutely demolished his car. Did any of you see that? And people came along, he had other sledgehammers, and they joined in. They all knew exactly what he was feeling, you know. <laughs> it is okay to give the ego something to attack. And we'll, get, we'll get to that in just a minute. But first of all, let's talk about just sort of the everyday kinds of worries that we have. What, what you can do, what you can give your ego to worry about. For example, uh, what is your right color? Now, that's good for months. <laughs> What's your right color? You can read books on that, and you can try out things. This is all very harmless and very pleasant. You can go into stores. You can become very good friends with certain uh, salespeople, you know, because they think you're going to buy a whole new wardrobe, you see. You've just discovered that green is not your color, and almost everything you've got has got green in it, you see. Now, that's perfectly harmless. You can feel the peace of God while you go about doing that. You see, 
Or uh, another favorite one is, what am I going to be in life? That's a very that's a favorite ego. What am I going to be in life? Uh, you can pursue that. And we're all pursuing that to some degree, trying to define ourselves. So go ahead and let your ego do that. You, but notice how crazy the whole concept is. What are you going to be in life? This assumes that you are nothing now, you see. <laughs> you have no identity. You have no purpose. You have no function. Somehow you've got to figure out what this is going to be. And so when people ask you to party, what are you or what do you do? You see, you can have this wonderful thing, you see, that you come up with. Another thing that uh, you can do to distract the ego is to get your house clean. Now that you will spend the rest of your life. You? <laughs> you will never get your house clean. You see? But your ego thinks that there's a way to get it clean. So go ahead and devote large amounts of time to this. It really is us perfectly harmless. It's much better than going out and uh, raping and mugging and stuff like that. So. Or uh, you've got to get your car running right. That's another good one. Right. That's, you can spend you know, lots of time doing that. Or uh, another one is uh, dieting. Now, dieting, that's one. One of, the things, one of three things happen, you've probably noticed, when you begin a new diet. Either you gain weight, <laughs> or you lose weight, or you stay the same. <laughs> now, of course, that's exactly what happened when you weren't dieting. But the ego thinks this is very meaningful, you see. <laughs> now, there's a second stage of uh, ego preoccupations that have a potential harmfulness in them, and you might want to look at these a little more closely before you embark on them. And that is, for example, trying to have model children. Now, this can, this can begin to create a war if you set out on this thing. You know, is your kid smart enough? Is, uh, uh, she should be doing such and such at this age, and she's not doing it. Uh, or uh, whatever the thing may be. You know how this, this, there's no end to this. Uh, another one uh, that's a step up from these sort of harmless activities the ego engages in that has great potential hurtfulness in it is uh, trying to straighten out your spouse. <laughs> now, so you, you read the magazine articles and so forth, uh, can this marriage be saved? <laughs> and you think, ah, we're not uh, having sex three times a week. I don't know where they ever came up with this business of three times a week, but this has now become some norm, you know. We're not having sex three times a week. He doesn't love me. Because that's another uh, worry that we have is, is uh, am I good enough in bed? Now, are they still in bed with you right now? That you weren't good enough. <laughs> Something was far more attractive than staying in bed with you. So reforming our friends, or reforming our spouse, or reforming our children, or trying to make uh, the place we work a fair place to work. You see. Now this, you're asking for trouble now if you move up into this kind of thing, because you're, the place where you work is in business to make money, not to be fair. Now, that's, once you understand that, you can just sit back and that's, you know, they're not there to be fair. They're there to make the money and that's, 
you'll just look at what's going on ego level, you'll see there's no way you're going to reform it. The basic motivation is going to stay the same. But there, there could be trappings of fairness. But there's no real fairness. And the ego will always find a way to go around these trappings of fairness. Now then there's a third level of ego activity in which we are deliberately destructive. And most of you are beyond that. But I, I'm, I'm sure that there are a few of you who are not, or that there are a few of you who know people in your family or among your friends who are deliberately destructive. Um, we've all been through that. It doesn't really make any difference. It actually doesn't mean that we're any further along on the spiritual path uh, if we still have a strong desire to hurt ourselves or to hurt others. Uh, if, if there is this burning addiction to something uh, or this desire to, to, to hurt people in some way, uh, to hurt them in business, you know, to hurt them financially, or uh, then the more blatant kinds of things like uh, beating people up or tearing them apart intellectually, you know, that kind of intellectual bullying, that kind of thing. Uh, a person can actually be very, very close to God and still have uh, one of these addictions. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, for example, with alcoholics, the, uh, the sort of almost radical transformation that an alcoholic will go through when they've decided to give up their transformation. So, so you'll see this person, their lives sort of go along like this, they're an alcoholic, and then suddenly they give it up and it's just like, they go like that. All just suddenly, realizing that a lot more was going on during this stage than was apparent. So what do you do if you find that you suddenly have a desire to, say, for example, beat up your spouse or beat up your child? Simply give your ego something else to destroy. This is, this, this is perfectly all right, because... If you simply try to handle this in a meditative state, it, it, you already know that's not going to be successful. Unless you've gotten to the point where you're now truly willing to see that this isn't making you happy. Once you see it's not making you happy, it'll just fall away. You won't do it anymore. But if you, you know if you've gotten to that point. Maybe there's some addiction that's, uh, that's taking most of the money away from the family. But you know whether or not you're willing to give this up yet, whether or not it still seems pleasurable to you. So in this case, you simply give the ego something else to do that's not as harmful. This isn't a healing, but this does allow your mind to return to God. And that's the only purpose of all of our dealings with the ego simply have that one thing in mind. So, for example, if you're getting ready to beat up your spouse... It's far better to destroy a table than it is to destroy your spouse. That's obvious, isn't it? It will not preoccupy you as long. You won't feel guilty about it as long. You won't go over and over in your mind. Now, it is true you can beat pillows and things like that, uh, but oftentimes that will not satisfy your ego. It knows the difference between a pillow and a spouse, you see. <laughs> but it's confused as to whether or not this... A very expensive table. This might be as valuable as a spouse. <laughs> so completely demolish it. It's, uh, you will, your mind will be preoccupied with it far less. This whole thing will continue uh, for a much shorter period of time if you will simply turn the anger. Do not be afraid to do this. Now look, uh, what will happen is the ego will step in and say... Uh, Yes, you don't want to destroy that. That's that's your favorite table. Or uh, uh, you don't want to knock out every window in the house uh, because now you're going to have to call people up and you're going to have to have the glasses. It's going to cost, cost big bucks to do this. All of that's true, but it will still be less inhibiting to your peace than it would if you beat up your, your child or your spouse. I'm not saying this is some new activity that you have to engage in, you understand? <laughs> I'm just saying if you happen to be uh, one of those 
firewood, yeah, getting out there, put someone's face on the log and split it, you see. Now, this, this, this may sound horrifying to you, but it's better than you're harboring this murderous rage towards this person and getting back at them indirectly. Because this can go on for years, you see. Just give your ego something else to destroy. Now, what if it's an addiction? That doesn't seem to be a destructive tendency. In fact, it is. The object is simply different. So we're trying to destroy ourselves rather than destroy someone else. But still, the desire is to destroy. But it seems different. It seems possibly like it's a pleasure of some sort. There are a number of things that you can do. Remember, the ego has got to do something. It's got to, be, it's got to see a purpose. It's got to have a project. It's got to have a process. This is very important to understand. Your ego has to be engaged in something that it thinks is meaningful. All you're going to do is look at it, see that it needs this, and give it something that will not distract your attention from the peace of God. So, for example, uh, I've told you that uh, David Poole is a uh, neurolinguistic uh, programming practitioner, however you say it. Uh, NLP is a very effective means of bringing about change. If you want to change a personal habit, if you want to change uh, an addiction, uh, any kind of behavior, behavioral change, uh, neurolinguistic neuro programming has is, is got excellent tools for that. They're not for everybody. But they, they might be, for you. and it's a program. You can, you can actually do things. You see, you can work on this. Uh, AA and all, all of its uh, other branches like uh, Parents Anonymous and uh, Alateens and uh, Al-Anon and what else? Eaters Anonymous and so forth. This is another program that you can, you'll also get truth along with it. So here it is, you see that you have this addiction. Now look at the addiction. Be honest with yourself. You know whether or not you're ready to give this up. If you're not ready to give it up, take a step that will help. Your ego always wants it to be all or nothing, so that no change will take place, so there will be no improvement. Because your ego knows it will never be all or nothing. It will always be more or less gradual. It will be always more or less gentle. Okay, I want to get into one other subject along with this. And that is the voice of, uh, of the ego opposed to the voice of God. This is possibly the most confusing thing to people on a spiritual path. When are they hearing the voice of God? It's quite simple to determine it. Once you look closely at the whole thing, you can see the difference. But in the beginning, there are certain things that will confuse you because you assume that if such and such a thing is happening, this means God is speaking to you. Probably the most common is psychic phenomena. So you assume that if you have a precognition, this is coming from God. Or you assume that if you hear an external voice, this is coming from God. Or you assume that if someone who has already died, already made their transition, speaks to you, that what they are saying is the truth. Or you assume that if you leave your body, that what you hear in this altered state, astral state, whatever you want to call it, is somehow more truthful, more loving, more kind, more peaceful than what you hear if you're not in that state. <clears throat> or you assume that in your meditation, if you suddenly start having certain bodily sensations that you haven't had before, that now God is speaking more directly to you. This simply is not the case. The Holy Spirit can use precognitions, out-of-the-body experiences, auras, 
manifestations. But so can the ego. And this is very important to, to remember. We, we've talked about the higher ego as Edgar. Edgar the higher ego. All right, now, Edgar, you see, this is just a dream. And, it, and we can do anything in this dream that we do in a dream at night. But it, the dream isn't coming from God. The dream is coming from the ego. So we know that those few people, there are an increasing number all the time because there is a general awakening that has begun now. But those people who have come to the stage where they can change the world give this up very quickly. They will only do it for a short period of time because they realize it is not helpful. It's not, it's not teaching love. It's simply giving people the false idea that there's a way to make this world work, to make their lives work, to have a personality that everyone would like. To somehow grow older and still uh, fit the current definition of physical beauty. To have enough money. To have model children. There is no way to do it. It's so obvious once we look at it. But we don't look at the obviousness of it and we get caught up in these, these things. So let me give certain characteristics of the voice of God and the voice of Edgar. Because I'm going to assume that most of you now are hearing the voice of Edgar and not the voice of the lower ego. You can recognize the voice of the lower ego. We've talked this morning about something that can be done about it. You can give it something else to do. Or, if you're strong enough, you can simply return to peace. That's always the quickest and best thing if you can do it. I'm just saying if you can't do it, do what you can do to relieve your mind of this thing. Here's Edgar. Now remember, Edgar, or the voice for God. The Course in Miracles uses that distinction. It distinguishes between God and the voice for God. So that which comes into your mind, A Course in Miracles, says is the voice for God or the Holy Spirit, or Jesus. But Jesus quite specifically, not Jesus in some abstract way. But this, so Jesus comes to you and speaks to you for God. Now it isn't necessary, we don't have to get into why this is a, uh, a good distinction to make. If it's a helpful distinction for you to make, make it. If it's not, don't make it. You can just call everything that's good God if you want to. It doesn't make, really make any difference. But the voice for God can come to you either as your own thoughts or as an impression or as a voice that you actually hear and recognize as not your own voice or in a hundred other ways. But usually for most of us it's either coming as our own thoughts or it's coming as a some sort of dissociated uh, voice, some sort of uh, externalized kind of thing, an impression, a feeling that doesn't seem to be quite our own. It's, it's, it's not, not quite our own. But for most of us, it's our thoughts. Now, how do you know whether or not the thoughts you are thinking is coming from God, whether it's coming from your, your heart, from your higher self, from this pure light that shines undimmed within you, how do you know whether it's coming from there or it's coming from Edgar, which mimics the voice for God? Well, here are the characteristics of Edgar. Edgar, you can usually uh, immediately recognize an ego thought or voice by a certain anxious sense of excitement. So it will be exciting in some way. There will be a future orientation but that not, may not be seen as readily as the excitement that accompanies it. So you'll just feel suddenly excited about something, some suggestion, something you're supposed to do in your life. You see, maybe you're supposed to marry someone. Maybe you're supposed to change your job. Whatever it is. But there will be this excitement. 
On the other hand, the voice for God does not have that kind of uh, ego excitement. <coughs> what it has is a is a deep sense of relaxation and peace. So that when you hear the voice for God, it does not immediately check, uh, focus your attention on some future event. It returns it gently to the present. It makes you happy now. It makes you genuinely relaxed this instant. Edgar, the higher ego, will give you a suggestion as either an idea or a voice that will in some way make you feel separate from other people. Now, it will make you feel separate in the, maybe in the sense that you now feel that you must involve yourself in some controversy or you must take some stand that will not be understood by others or that, that you are gaining some special knowledge that other people don't have. On the other hand, the voice for God, when you hear what God has to say to you, you will say, oh, of course. You knew it all along. You know that everyone knows it. There's nothing startling about it. It's just peaceful and true like a, like the very ground that you walk on. Solid. It's there. It's always there. If you look down at it, there it is. <coughs> Edgar's voice will always involve application of truth to this world. So anytime you ask yourself, how am I supposed to behave because of this truth that you've just... You see, here comes the voice for God and you have this lovely insight that brings rest to you and allows you to see other people in a kind and happy way. Now immediately, Edgar will step in and tell you how this must be applied. Edgar will step in and say, uh, you must make a rule out of this and you must behave in this certain way. Whenever you find yourself wondering about how you should behave or telling someone else how they should behave or criticizing someone else for how they behave, this is the higher ego. This has nothing to do with a voice for God because there's no judgment in it and there is no false focus on externals. Edgar's voice often involves manipulation of other people. So you will find yourself somehow trying to rearrange other people or their lives or get them to do this or do that. A subtle manipulation will come into it. And above all will come a sense of a special relationship to God. So in some way you will think God is favoring you, that you've somehow advanced, that you've somehow arrived, that you are somehow in a position that some other people are not in, that you're now getting information that uh, other people aren't getting. This does not come from God if you feel this kind of specialness. When you hear the voice for God, you will feel a unity with other people, a joining with them. You will see them as your brothers and sisters. You will know that you walk hand in hand with them. If anything comes into your mind that makes you feel special, more knowledgeable, smug, arrogant, this comes from Edgar. I don't care what words of truth it comes in. A Course in Miracles says that the ego can quote A Course in Miracles. And the Bible, of course, warns about the same thing. Now, the higher ego will always come to you in terms of truth. It knows that you are on a spiritual path. It's not going to come in the way it used to. So it will make its suggestions with all the right words, you see. Here's a very simple, if you just want to begin noticing the difference. And don't do this unless it's pleasant. This certainly isn't anything to worry about. This doesn't have to be a new concern as to whether or not well, somehow you're 
test every thought now, where it's coming from. I'm not, not suggesting that this be done. I'm merely saying that if something happens to you while you're meditating or during the day and so forth, look at it simply and directly. It is not difficult to tell where it's coming from. If it causes you to relax and be happy now, if it directs your attention to the present, if it allows you to join with others, it's coming from God. If it has something to do with the future, I don't care how spiritual the project is or anything else. If something has to be done first, if there's some mission you've got to go on, then this doesn't have anything to do with the voice for God. And all you have to do is look at Now, if you want a way to practice this, notice that as you go through the day, there will be these lovely insights that come into your mind, these, these little gentle truths. That's the voice for God. Edgar immediately steps in and has you apply that to someone else. Someone else ought to hear this. So now you're imagining yourself telling this truth to someone else. Or somehow you're going to write this down. It's got to go into a book. It's going to be published. Or uh, immediately Edgar will try to shift the truth out of the present into the future. That's, it's very simple. Shift into the future. Anxiety. Separateness. Specialness. Something needs to be done. Some sense of tension about all this. Some sense of excitement about all this. There is genuine excitement, but it's, it's more like joy. Joy might be a better word for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a splendor and a music that just fills the universe when you hear God laugh. Which God is always doing. It's just, it's like those bells we hear in the distance. It just fills everything. It's now. has nothing to do with the future. Or your advantage over someone else. I write books so differently than I used to. I used to think that writing books had to do with uh, getting books published. And that my enjoyment of writing the books came from the knowledge that they would be published. And what people's reaction would be. Even that it would help people. Now even that is higher ego. That's a very subtle one. I'm doing this to help people in the future. You see. Not help people now. My writing has changed radically. And that is, I now realize that the only thing that helps my brothers and my sisters. The only way that I can help in this awakening that's now begun is to experience the peace of God now. Nothing else matters except the peace of God. All the projects and everything else mean nothing. So what's happened in my life is that I have withdrawn from all kinds of activities that were not lending themselves to my relationship to God. This sort of busy work, all very uh, well-meaning and so forth. And so I had projects going on. I was going to set up groups out at the penitentiary and, and all. The, I mean, just, I, can't, I could list you all the things that I was just about to do when I suddenly realized that this had nothing to do with anything. That God was asking only one thing of us to, to, to awaken his children from this dream. And that is to experience his peace because our minds are connected. Our minds are literally joined to every mind on this earth, and when we experience God's peace, that peace flows through the mind of every person on this earth. Now that is, of course, very difficult for people to understand, and in the beginning it's just sort of an intellectual concept. But after a while you begin to realize that this is, an, this is a fact, and that one peaceful thought will do 10,000 times more than all the words and everything else. So you want to know why I write now? Because I feel the peace of God when I write. So I was recently involved in writing a book that I knew was not going to get published or probably wasn't going to get published. This, this suddenly dawned on me in the middle of the project. Now the question was, would I continue writing the book? And the answer was yes, because I felt the peace of God while writing it. And it didn't make any difference whether it's published. So now what I've done is I've set up a little room in my house. And uh, 
put in the walled wall carpet, you know, which you're not supposed to do in New Mexico, and went to <laughs> went to American Furniture and got real comfortable chairs, you know, not the quaint handmade things that I've been forcing myself to sit on, you know. <laughs> These were these wonderful recliners, you know, with the synthetic stuff that never stains and everything, you know. <laughs> Gail and I did this together. We took this little room and we just fixed it up that way. Now I go in that room and I do my writing, which is just a pure meditation. I ask, I don't ask about what is going to happen with this material. I don't care anymore what will happen with the material. Every once in a while... Edgar will step in. Edgar cares what's going to happen, you see. But I'll just, you know, I'll just say, no, that's not, I want to enjoy this. I don't care. I'm just writing it, and I may throw it away. It may go into a book. I don't know what will happen. This has now allowed me to write some books for some other people, with, which I couldn't have done in peace uh, even a, a year or so ago because I would have thought that I, this is not right, that I wouldn't get credit for it. They would get the credit for my words, and uh, so there are several people now that I'm writing books for them. And their name will go on the book. And they will get the credit. It doesn't matter. I feel the peace of God while writing, you see. And, and the ego is always doing something. Even if it's sitting in a chair, it's doing something. This is very important to understand. The ego is always involved in an activity. So noticing that, we cannot make the ego stop acting. There's no way for the ego to do nothing. It will always do something. So what then do we have our ego do as we go through the day? We have something, we have let it do something that does not distract us from the peace of God. That's what we have it do, something that it wants to do, that it thinks is important. We realize it's not important, but we give it this thing to do. We do not have to take on everything that the world throws up. This is such a relief to understand. You can walk around anything that comes up during the day. I was talking to a woman... Uh, in uh, Denver, and she was sitting in court waiting for, waiting for the session to start. She had been having a battle for about two years over the custody of her children with her husband. The thing had been almost completely worked out. Well, she said that it really had essentially been worked out, but that her attorney and the, uh, and the friends, her friends and so forth said, no, you've got to get this and you've got to get that, and there's one more thing that has to be done. And here she was sitting in court one more time. And she realized suddenly she didn't have to do that. And she got out of court and she went into the mountains. Now, several people were very angry at her. But it doesn't matter. You see, look at the events of your life. You don't have to take anything on. If you don't like the job that you're doing and you'd like to take a job that pays less but you would enjoy it more, that's all right. It doesn't matter if your parents cluck. <laughs> about this <laughs> and so row 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 your boat gently you see what we do is this is what you do you start the day here are the events of the day before you uh, they're just out there like multiple doors you see what events do you choose here's how you choose what you do during the day is you lean forward into the events just lean, and wherever the events give, that's where you walk. You walk the way of peace. You do not have to fight every battle that the world tells you you have to fight, unless you would like to fight it. Just lean into the events and take the winding road of peace. Go this way. Step around this. If you want to take a stand on this thing, if it makes you more peaceful, take the stand. You may not want to take the stand tomorrow. Don't take the stand tomorrow. This will drive your ego crazy because it thinks you're being erratic. And you are being erratic. <laughs> because to be peaceful is to be erratic in this world. The only way that you can be consistent in this world is to consistently attack. So row, row, row your boat gently down the street. Means that we go down the street. We row gently, which means we're not rowing at all. And then, of course, there are four Marilys to every three rows. Because life is but a dream. Okay, so this side will start, and this side we'll do three. Huh? Well, we, we tried that before. It gets a little complicated. All right. All right. 
So we'll start this group, and then this we'll do three verses. This will be so much fun. <laughs> then you can leave. Okay. Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat. Gently down the stream. Gently, 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 g